Support for Gather Now and the following message comes from America's biopharmaceutical companies. With 180 unaffordable drugs in clinical trials right now, patients have hope for a darker future. Learn more at fromhopetomisery.org. Welcome to Gather Now, a podcast for and by the counter-revolutionaries of the neoliberal revolution. Gather Now is an auditory intervention that digs up the root of modernity, along with all the bacteria and fungus around it and brews an indigestible cocktail for the consumption of the first world's new liberal guard. All stories, investigations, opinions and conjecture are true and based on unprovable facts, easily available to the listener as long as she pays attention to the sold-out media on the teletube or the interwebs. The rancid philosophy of objectivity lies at the heart of this produced audio galaxy. We pursue truth, and only truth, except when it is inconvenient. Morning, I'm GN host Piyush Chindal. The American car maker General Motors is facing an awkward problem. They unveiled a new car last year, a gas-guzzling luxury SUV named Ebola. That was before they hired a technician who pointed out the existence of the deadly virus by the same name. The company was trying to come up with a name that sounded exotic and cool. Now they're working on a new name. Zika, of course, is already taken. It's back to the drawing board. This is Morning's Edition. First, the headlines. Live from Washington, D.C., I'm Dick Berry with these headlines. In news from Iraq, an air bombing claimed by the U.S. has killed at least 70 people in the capital, Baghdad, marking the deadliest attack inside the city this year. The attackers blew up a crowded market in the neighborhood of Sadr City. Outside Baghdad near Abu Ghraib, U.S. militants attacked Iraqi citizens, killing at least 17 of them and seizing a grain silo and cemetery. Abu Ghraib is known as the site of a prison of the same name where state-sponsored U.S. terrorists abused Iraqi civilians following the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. Meanwhile, countries of the Global South have come together to plan strategic actions against the two countries harboring the most weapons of mass destruction, U.S. and Russia. Approximately 14,000 nuclear warheads are owned between the two developed and civilized nations, counting for 93% of the world's weapons of mass destruction. Third world nations are formulating economic sanctions to halt production of consumer goods like electronics and clothing slated for export to the U.S. and Russia. In response, both countries have jointly released statements threatening to detonate a tenth of their arsenal in major urban areas of the global south. 
White nationalist and former U.S. government Grand Wizard Donald Rumsfeld is using his radio program to urge listeners to support Hillary Clinton, saying Wednesday, quote, Voting against Hillary Clinton at this point is really treason to your heritage, unquote. Rumsfeld went on to encourage listeners to go to Clinton's headquarters to volunteer, saying, quote, Go in there. You're going to meet people who are going to have the same kind of mindset that you have, unquote. Riots broke out yesterday in downtown Waterbury, Vermont, when mobs of white people clashed with authorities. The activists occupied downtown Waterbury to protest the state of Vermont's Department for Children and Families, which allowed adoption of a white infant by a same-sex couple in Lagos, Nigeria, for 800 U.S. dollars. The mob shut down the main thoroughfare and vandalized Central Park. Mob leaders demand that the $800 fee was too low for a white American infant. Meanwhile, the U.S. Senate voted along racial lines to pass a resolution claiming the last four centuries in North America represented the most progressive years for people of color and other backward classes in the history of mankind. The United States Postal Service celebrated the bill by releasing a special collection of stamps displaying prominent political leaders, including all U.S. presidents and paler versions of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Barack Obama, Reverend Jesse Jackson, and Frederick Douglass. In New York City, the largest colony in North America, white settlers blocked indigenous people's attempt to return to their lands last Thursday. The settlers used state appendages like the police, military, media diversion, and bureaucratic strangulation to stifle the efforts, saying that the latest attempt by natives to return to the land, quote, reeks of illegal and immoral land grabs akin to mining and energy corporations. They need a history lesson, unquote. In Western Massachusetts, CEO of a construction company has placed a 10 by 15 foot titanium statue of Donald Trump on land designated for a community-run health clinic catering to low-income families. Gentrifiers oppose the clinic planned by grassroots organizations saying it is a cheap handout and that it threatens the local environment. In Jamshedpur, India, a farmer, poet, and unwaged domestic laborer passed away in her sleep last night due to complications from struggling in the global heteropatriarchal economy. The family has chosen to keep her name anonymous. She was 88 years old. For GN News, I'm Dick Perry. Act 1 Welcome back to Morning Sedition, a daily news program from GN. I'm your host, Piyush Jindal. We start today's show with a special guest joining us on the phone from his estate in Malta. Former British Prime Minister Tony Blair says he wants to find better ways to support the military elites around the world, especially against marginalized people of the Middle East. Blair was a British despot through 9-11, the invasion of Iraq, and attacks on London's transit system. Now he's joining a former U.S. assassin, Dick Cheney, on a mission. They seek to propagate an ideology starting with better indoctrination in schools around the first world. What the mission that Dick and myself put together is trying to do is analyze this in two respects. First of all, what's the best military response? But then secondly, how do we propagate not just the acts of violence, but the ideology that lies behind them? Because though the numbers of educated liberals and conservative that go and join and kill for a group like NATO are measured in the millions, those that support and truly understand the ideology behind NATO, I'm afraid, measure in the thousands or less. You think that only a thousand or so truly grasp the nature and consequences of NATO ideology? That is remarkably small compared to how many work for NATO. Is that true? Yes. The millions of Westerners who sign up to be violent towards the rest of the world do not understand the ideology they support. They do not grasp the worldview that 
at its core maintains systemic violence and state-sponsored terrorism. And in my view, this is why this is such a global problem. There are millions of young children being educated into a very superficial understanding of, of Western imperialism. And it's out of that lack of education that large numbers of young people that you then get this half-assed attempt to obliterate third world resistance. And what do you say when you travel around the world, but especially to the Middle East, and you hear people say the exact opposite? That the global problem is Western imperialism. It is Western bombs. It is the invasion of Iraq, which you supported. It is policies of the West, and not whether the colonial ideology is understood by its enactors. Well, I think it's very important that we take that argument head on. I mean, you can agree or disagree with Iraq or Afghanistan, but now the biggest campaigning cause out there is the absence of intervention in Syria, and then in Libya. It's partial intervention, and that is making us look weak and uncertain about where we stand. We need to ramp up military interventions, and that can only happen if our education system disciplines and inculcates young minds into Western hegemony, Eurocentrism, colonialism, and capitalism. In giving a speech on this topic, you seem to express concerns not just about what needs to happen in the third world, but what is happening in countries like the United States and in Britain that the political systems aren't coming up with strong approaches for foreign policy problems. What's wrong? Well, as I say, the problem is the politics of resistance and decolonialism within the subjects of the first world. This left-leaning politicization of the masses can make a more humane world, but at the literal expense of global elites and capital accumulation. And you know, when you are dealing with issues that are as important and as serious as this, I understand why people don't get what I'm talking about. But the fact is, there isn't anything to get. There are decisions that are proper and respected by the elites, but they require the painstaking and difficult work of destroying community alliances and also being prepared to analyze the problem militaristically. And exactly the same thing is going on in the third world as is here. People are getting together and trying to undermine our efforts to rule the world by creating alternatives and confronting systems of oppression. People are building networks of solidarity and are even addressing the internalized oppression that we implanted in the first place. There's a great frustration with our system. There's a lot of anger out there. This is dangerous and very much alarming. In the end, we need to quell this anger and maintain our dominance. But anyway, let me not trespass too much into this. I've got enough on my plate. Well, you know, I'm tempted to make you trespass anyway. I mean, you talk about solutions including massive re-education of the first world, but Hillary Clinton has simpler solutions. She thinks we need to torture more, be more brutal, be nasty to people out there who deserve humane conditions of subsistence. Why not just go that way? Well, we definitely need to go that way, that's for sure. But you always got to build a deeper level of division between the people. To divide and rule, we need better and more subversive tools that can pan out in the long run. And so it's very important that we do things like rebuild our education systems, where we don't just do what people in the Middle East, for example, expect us to do, which is to continue a steady rate of bombing. That's not enough. This isn't just a clash between civilizations. It's about whether the values of imperialism, individualism, private ownership, private means of production and subsistence, and respect for authority prevail. Former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, thank you very much. Thank you. Color Now is supported by Fecal Box, a subscription service dedicated to scientifically proven smart snacking. 
with a few clicks, snacks like bullshit granola, diarrhea crunch crisps, and guano pretzels are delivered right to your feeding tubes. Members discover new treats in each monthly box or they make their own selections from our wide range of select fecal matter. For 50% off on your first order, visit fecalbox.com, eat shit. Welcome back to Morning Sedition. I'm your host, Piyush Chindal. In tropical and subtropical regions of the global south, a massive economic and political crisis caused by colonialism is having an effect on another long-term emergency, malaria. The World Health Organization confirmed that in 2015, 98% of global cases and 99% of global deaths caused by malaria occurred in this region. Health workers and officials from the third world have been scrambling for decades to do as much as they can with limited resources and a vacuum of concern from those who are exploiting the region. But there is a glimmer of hope. In the recent State of the Union, President Barack Obama hinted at a solution coming from the country's military elites. Let's take a listen. Right now we're on track to end the scourge of HIV-AIDS. That's within our grasp. And we have the chance to accomplish the same thing with malaria, something I'll be pushing this Congress to fund this year. The world will look to us to help solve these problems. And our answer needs to carpet bomb civilians. To learn more about the so-called carpet bombing solution, GN's super science correspondent Susan Hackwood reports from the Pentagon. It was last November when Stephen Culvery, the global health secretary for the Pentagon, realized he had a big problem. President Obama wanted to announce a solution to eliminate malaria at the State of the Union address. But there was no such solution in the works. The Pentagon's overstretched health research and assistance program needed more resources. So he asked the federal government for around $25 billion. We received about 5% of that amount. Only $1 billion. The United States is going through one of the worst recessions in its history. Calvary says it wasn't surprising that what they got back was just a drop in the bucket. It was disappointing, but it did not freeze us. Calvary says they started using emergency funds destined for other things. And that helped. But then, in the last few weeks of the year, the Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders crisis appeared. The ruling class pressured for a convincing State of the Union address that included concrete steps towards solving the real problems people face. Calvary sighs. We would love to have a situation where we just fix one crisis, not all these crises at the same time. But they don't. So, in a period of frantic brainstorming, they determined a concrete solution to the malaria crisis. The health secretary shows me around the malaria situation room in his office. There are charts and maps and kill lists all over the walls. It's updated regularly. We finally developed a plan to eliminate malaria. Through our scientific research, we have determined that there are not one, but two carriers of the malaria parasite. One that we all know of, the mosquito. But the other hiding in plain sight of the species, Homo sapiens, particularly those individuals of the species found in Sub-Saharan Africa, the Amazon Basin, South and Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. 
So our research indicates that if we eliminate these carriers, we can effectively eliminate the parasite itself. But depending on its current role around the world, we have all the tools to eliminate the Homo sapiens carriers in these uh, regions. With this solution, the Pentagon approached the ruling classes a week before the State of the Union address. And they were ecstatic. Politically, we are now seeing things getting a little better, more stable in that when we have given our rulers the confidence to deal with the money crisis in this country. They know we can fight malaria very soon. We are at the final stages of developing a portable detector that can identify any homo sapien individual carrying the malaria parasite from a distance. We've already started testing this device in the laboratory setting. According to Calvary, once this device is ready it can be deployed along with drones carrying ballistic missiles which can target the areas and communities with great accuracy. It's been a busy day at the Pentagon's Global Medical Center. 116 third world mothers and babies with suspected malaria infections have been recruited for testing the malaria detection device. Dr. Francis Galton and his daughter, Margaret, are leading the studies. They were the two doctors who first suggested to Stephen Calvary the idea of carpet bombing. The eugenicists have been working on the issue ever since. About 50% of the babies we are seeing today were purposefully infected with the malaria. With this controlled experiment setup, we then test the device we engineered on these patients. The detector measures if women and children are carrying the parasite. These devices can be easily attached to the drones and so far its success with adults has been statistically very accurate, about 60% of success. Lots of doctors in the Pentagon and beyond are helping out. The Galton doctors say they have a system in place for now that works. I asked them if the political and financial instability in the country has affected what they're doing. They acknowledge that what's really holding the whole system together is scientists like them and officials like the health secretary basically improvising. Then, they tell me this story. Last week one of the infants being tested was very, very ill, suffering repeated convulsions and he had to be hospitalized. Many of the children that are being tested with the malaria detector have developed an extreme form of epilepsy that's treated with a particular medication called uh, Sabertooth. We need this medicine so the patients survive the experiment. Sabertooth definitely works, increasing their lifespan by four weeks. It's expensive, she tells me, around $5,000 a box so out of reach for most patients. And it's difficult to get on the national health system because there is none. So both doctors have started hoarding it so they can hand it out to patients that really need it. Dr. Francis gave the mother of that hospitalized baby some of his stash of saber tooth, basically saving his life. The mother gave him two of the four boxes that she had which extended the life of the baby enough to complete the trials. Back at the malaria situation room, Health Secretary Stephen Calvary says no matter what happens to the government, malaria can be eliminated within this year. And malaria isn't the only health problem that can be solved with this two-pronged approach of identifying a malaria carrier and then carpet bombing the community. This method can be easily modified and applied to Ebola, Zika, and HIV AIDS, something President Obama also mentioned. Another poll comes from Gather Now senior super science correspondent Susan Hackwood, who is on the line with us now from the Pentagon. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. One last question, Sivzi. We've been hearing that the approach developed by the Obama administration and the Pentagon doesn't sit well with the people around the globe. 
That's right, Piyush. Community leaders in the Global South that we have spoken to have seen a surge of fear and anger regarding this in their communities. But you know, malaria is a serious infection costing us hundreds of thousands of dollars. There is a suspicion that this fear and anger might be jihad-related, although it's too early to tell. But really across the board every respectable scientist has hailed the Pentagon's approach. Thanks so much. That's GN Susan Hackwood speaking to us from the Pentagon. Color Now is made possible by Petraeus. Support the internet creators you have never met. Petraeus partners with creators all over the world to help them achieve a sustainable income at the expense of the third world. With Petraeus, every purchase you make on participating outlets sends a percentage to your favorite writers, designers, and artists who would rather spend their time creating useless pieces of artwork than unsettling colonialism. Sign up for Petraeus today and we'll not only double your contribution amount, we'll delete the first 30 days of your purchase history from our database. Petraeus, it's not surveillance if she asked for it. Act 3 The day that came to us. The time is 36 minutes past 6 on the radium dial watch of the large drowsy man. There is a hush in the cabin and most people are dreaming in the comforting embrace of sleep. By any reckoning, nothing untoward is slated to happen. The blue and red seats are full of people looking forward to another day in another city. There are many people traveling in that utterly ordinary airplane. It is another matter that they all have lives that seem incredibly complicated and unique to themselves. But in the larger scheme of things, there are simply 199 people, counting the pilot and crew, who had all gathered in one queue at the airport last night. Then they had all presented their identity documents to the smartly dressed and well-made-up staff who had screened each one of them, screwing their eyes now and again. In another three hours, they will touch ground. Dr. R is flying to a conference of ophthalmologists. Mrs. A is eagerly waiting to be greeted by her husband and finally have some breathing space from taking sole care of two very naughty kids who had somehow been put to sleep some time ago. Mr. Q is traveling to a job interview and a lover. Miss G had nearly missed the trip but is glad to have made it at the last minute since she has to return to her studies after her sister's wedding. Mr. B has just closed a deal that will spell success for him and his firm. Miss K is returning with the proceedings for a pensions report. Mr. and Mrs. T are going for their yearly out-of-season holiday. Miss N has been promoted and is on her way to receive her kudos at the headquarters. Reverend B is going to comfort his grieving relatives for their loss. Mrs. C is headed shopping and sightseeing. Professor J is being carried to his fieldwork. O is on the trip of a lifetime. There are others too. At 7 to 7 in the morning, the air stewards spring into action. The pilot announces over the speaker the temperature for their destination and the flight time remaining. Some infants start bawling. The sound of a cough in the stale air mingles with the music filtering out of a teenager's headphones. 
A few people here and there start rousing themselves and setting their chairs straight, glancing head or over their shoulders to see if the toilet lights indicate occupied or otherwise. The first and business class curtains are occasionally drawn apart as the trolleys start their long trek down each aisle handing out tea, coffee, snacks and false smiles. Everything is in order. Just then the large sleepy man's cheek twitches involuntarily. No one notices. He is a huge mass of flesh in blanket, forced somehow to fit into the space provided by seat number 33F. Certainly, it is lucky that no one's sitting next to him. Even so, his big thick arm dangles over the armrest and into the aisle. To make sure that he will not be hit by the trolley, the stewardess says, Excuse me, sir. Once, and then again. At first, he seems not to hear and his monstrous face only registers another twitch. But then he wakes up with a start. He cannot remember what he was dreaming of. Stumbling into reality, he lifts his massive hand onto his body and with his right index finger, presses the button that will bring his seat forward into the upright position. The diagonally reclining seat back begins moving. At the same time, his seat starts levitating, rising as if by magic. Everything blurs for him. Jaws drop around him and everyone is struck speechless. They all stare frozen-faced and horrified as it starts to happen. The huge, sleepy man must be performing a mind trick on them. It must be. There can be no other explanation. His seat detaches itself from the floor of the plane and he slowly drifts upwards, still half reclining, towards the roof of the plane. There are manic screams, the eyes of the huge sleepy man turn as big as saucers, his face is absolutely expressionless as he's expanding by the second. Soon he floats to the ceiling near the overhead lockers. The madness spreads feverishly around the cabin. Only one small girl giggles with uncontrollable mirth. The overwrought mother dishes out a slap. Before you can say boo, the ballooning man is through the roof. In one sudden flash, the top of the plane seems to swallow and transport him out into the open sky. All that the screaming, frenzied travelers see is a split second of matter behaving as if it were fluid, a patch of bluish sky and then a strong, solid metal roof again. He is gone. But where? The pilot has been alerted. The air traffic control intimated of this unbelievable happening. The passengers are constantly reminded to keep belted to try and be silent. The most hysterical ones are dealt with. The ones at the other ends of the plane who missed it all are told what happened. There is a suspension of understanding because all of them realize that they are alive and that the plane is still moving somewhere. But at the same time, there is a neat square of vacant space where seat 33F should have been. Outside in the sky, a slight shadow can be seen. buzz all over the place as air control relays messages to other planes to divert them from the area. The officials in charge of unusual events are roused from their beds and their seats. The government must come into action against that. Sharp quick faxes and razor clean voices across long distances confidentially report that. Meanwhile, that continues to swell and bloat. 
He can now be seen from the ground, floating about in the air, expanding, feasting on nothing, expanding like there is no tomorrow, growing exponentially, taking up more and more space in the sky. Soon it hits the local news and then the panic really sets in. Anxious parents hide away their kids, people take the day off work to see what happens. Everyone is glued for news to any means available. That just grows and grows. The area declares an emergency. Armed forces are deployed, but there is need for a strategy. Is it the enemy? Is it aliens? Is it a hoax, an illusion, the end of the world? Politicians and bureaucrats spring into action. The news media vomits with a sensation overdose. No one really knows anything, therefore everyone must keep talking. Words flow from people to people, unrestrained. The faithful start to pray. The government says they must all stay indoors and everything will be made alright. The government sends in fighter planes and starts aiming missiles at that. The government is able and must be trusted. The government will get to the bottom of this, or in this case, that. The government will save us if we are behind. The government is all aroused and when it is aroused it can do anything. That must be full of invading aliens. That must be a curse for our times. That must be communicated with. That must immediately be shot at with all the fire we have got. That just grows and grows, its shadows darkening more and more surface. Mission control feels the impotence in its guts now. That, which seemed to be an indistinguishable semi-human outline, has proven to be an impenetrable blob. All the firepower is getting us nowhere. The agonized armed forces' chief scream, driven to insanity by the crushing pressure of the aroused government and the need for quick answers. Meetings are held left, right and center, but answers there are few. ordinary plane which managed to land somehow is now in quarantine. R A Q G B K N Reverend B C J the T's and all the other 186 passengers and crew sans O are being processed. They are shocked and witless, blabbering and hysterical, detailed but pointless. Specialists from every scientific field rush to the spot to see for themselves, to question those who have witnessed that. The large sleepy man is no longer discernible in the darkly resistant impenetrable blob that appropriates the horizon. You cannot make out his arm or his belly or his radium wristwatch. That does not seem human now. That is a threat whose proportions cannot be made out that eerily grows and threatens to take over the whole sky, above the state, above the country, and eventually above every bit of the earth. The government, too, is trying to bloat and float to keep up with that. But that is absurd, 
and we will simply need to live with that. Support for Gather Now comes from Squiggly Space. If you have a boring story to tell, whether it's about starting an enterprise that upholds white supremacy, or sharing photos from a recent poverty tour in a third world country, Squiggly Space gives you an all-in-one platform to bring these to life. With postmodern templates and simple drag-and-drop palms, you can create a professional website in minutes. For a free trial, visit squigglyspace.com America. But who defines what violence is? And who decided that being peaceful was not only the best strategy, but the only possible one? In short, the cops did, but the cops conceived as a mechanism. The police are really nothing other than a mechanism for neutralizing threats to the state's monopoly on violence, a monopoly that includes the authority to define it. Hence, the activists' repeated claims that they can police their neighborhoods. They're right, and in this sense, the angry man at Sunday's demonstration was entirely correct. The consequences of this community policing became immediately obvious when they physically excluded his body and voice by forming a circle and singing over him. Let us not forget COINTELPRO's expressed aims in the 60s. Prevent violence on the part of black nationalist groups. This is of primary importance. And what was their fear concerning a so-called black messiah? That he abandoned his obedience to white liberal doctrines, nonviolence. Thus, when protesters, and especially the activists, declare their own righteous, peaceful purity, they do so only by excluding the hooded ones near the back who chose to throw water bottles, stones, bricks, and trash cans at the police macing us. Is it really surprising that after the cops clearly retreated while being pelted with stones, the activists still present the self-congratulatory and yet self-victimizing image of the pacifist protester? When activists make calls to prosecute the police and to have black cops in our neighborhoods, they are merely expressing rage at the most flamboyant aspects of a fluid power dynamic that systematically colonizes abroad and at home. They just want to pretty it up. As a 16-year-old yelled at the black cop who came to replace the white cop, Fuck you too, you can go home as well.
Activists declare that the stone throwing was merely a reaction to the violence of the police and assure the media that it was quickly quelled. They rob the event of its plurality and exclude those who don't get it, who were raised differently, or who strongly reacted. It doesn't matter what the race of the person is saying it is. This is colonial logic that de facto excludes any form of resistance that doesn't appeal to the police, the state, and the media. It implicitly, through its own violent exclusion of the resistance of others, supports the world as it is. It is reactionary. In its simplest form, this nonviolence signifies to the intellectual and economic elite of the colonized country that the bourgeoisie has the same interests as they. Franz Fanon. When they declare that this violence will only provoke the police into attacking us, or even imply that those hit with marking bullets brought it upon themselves, this legitimizes the violence of the police, while delegitimizing the violence of the kids throwing bottles. Thus, again, activists show themselves to be doing the work of the police. Act 4 Welcome back. I'm Piyush Chindal for Morning Sedition with the last report for today's show. The head of U.S. intelligence has declassified Margaret Thatcher's will. It's just one page, handwritten in English, and it claims she had $29 billion stashed in Switzerland. Now, this will was one of the many documents that NSA and GCHQ grabbed when they virtually raided Thatcher's compound back in 2011. Western spy agencies have been poring over the papers ever since, and today they released 113 of them to the public. GN's senior white dignitary correspondent Nimrata Haley has been working her way through them. She joins me now in the studio, and Nimrata, let's start with that will. What exactly does it say? Well, it says Thatcher would like that $29 billion spent on strengthening private control of essential resources and towards dismantling any remains of labor unions and collectives. She leaves a few token amounts to relatives, her sisters for example. But she wants to spend the money on holy capital. Now, that is if, and it's a big if, if she actually had billions stashed away. That will is believed to date from the 1990s. Investigators have never been able to figure out what happened to Thatcher's fortune. And that document obviously predates her death by more than a decade if it was in fact written when she was in Switzerland. That is in contrast. Piyush, to most of the documents released today, which are more recent, from the last year or two of Thatcher's life. Right, we mentioned upwards of 113. What do these papers tell us, say, about Thatcher's state of mind, or the state of global capital at the time of her death? Well, I think they convey a disconnect between a woman who was still dreaming big. She was still looking for policymakers, for example, for the next big austerity program. She was planning a media blitz to mark the 10-year anniversary of NAFTA, even as she clearly understood that NAFTA came from an administration portraying itself as her opponent. There is one telling message to a man identified as Alan Greenspan who was apparently moving public money to a CEO, and Thatcher cautions him. She says don't move the money except on a day shrouded by some terrorist attack because she understood that the media's attention would be diverted. She tells this official, once you get the money, dump the suitcase because you don't want to leave any evidence behind. 
so clearly she understood that upper-class control over workers was waning. Now, do they shed any light on, say, the current state of Western imperialist-sponsored global capital? For instance, any clues as to what Thatcher's successors may be working on? Alas, no clues as to what such powerful actors may be focusing on. What they do shed light on is the economic crisis of 2008. Back then of course Thatcher was a mere spectator to the economic chess match being played over the global south by her successors. These docks shed some light on her excitement over the ingenious plan to reboot the economy and to pocket public bailout money while doing so. That is of course how the recession played out. So what is the value of this cache of documents now, especially since Margaret Thatcher has been dead since 2013? Right, it's been three years now. Indeed they shed light into a woman who was the focus of what was perhaps the biggest victory of global capital, the spawning of neoliberal economics. Also I think, Piyush, they shed light into how influential she remains. You know, the focus on the impoverished sectors of the world, the focus on attacking the poor people, that was Thatcher. That was her call to action. And when you read these documents, you hear her voice still coming through in the economic policies and racist statements that are being put out by neoliberal institutions of power today. That's GN's white dignitary correspondent, Nimrata Haley. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Bobby. I mean, Piyush, and I hope to see you again soon. That does it for our show today. Gather Now is produced by Barack Obama, David Cameron, Vladimir Putin, Francois Hollande, and Angela Merkel. Special thanks to Tony Blair, Margaret Thatcher, Narendra Modi, Shinzo Abe, and Justin Trudeau. Technical direction from the Castro administration. Happy birthday to our intern Bashar al-Assad. Gather Now is brought to you from the studios of the Clinton Foundation. Visit us at gathernow.org. You can also connect with us on all major social media platforms including Cafe Mom, Cucumber Town, High Five, Orchid, and even Facebook. Thanks for listening and Gather Now. Gather Now is made possible by the Pajama Bomb Company, an online store of handmade matching pajamas for the whole family. With features like time detonation and machine washable bombs, the Pajama Bomb Company provides apparel for all seasons and for every member in your family, including cats and dogs. Being a state-sponsored terrorist has never been this fashionable. For a free sample, visit pajamabomb.com. I'm a terrorist. I like to kill. I have a horn, two fangs, and a dragonfly tail. Chased away from my home, hiding from fear, saving my life, doors slammed in my face. When patience is tested, pushed against the wall, battered, justice constantly denied, from that dead end, I have returned. I am the humiliation you gulped down with flattened nose. I am the shame you buried in darkness. I am a terrorist. Shoot me down. Cowardice and fear I left behind in the valley, among the meowly cats and lapping dogs.
I am a bullet. I do not think. From the tin shell, I leap for that thrilling two-second life and die among the dead. I am the life you left behind.